This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Patrick Meyer is the author of the book Digital Humanitarians, How Big Data is Changing the Face of Humanitarian Response. He directs the Social Innovation Program at the Qatar Computing Research Institute, where he and his team use human and machine computing to develop next-generation humanitarian technologies in partnership with international humanitarian organizations. Patrick has a Ph.D. from the Fletcher School, a pre-doc from Stanford, and an M.A. from Columbia. He blogs regularly at iRevolutions.net, and you can follow him at Patrick Meyer on Twitter. I spoke with Patrick in Doha. Hi there, Patrick. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Where am I calling you today? I am in Doha, Qatar, in the Arabian Persian Gulf. And you don't sound like you're from Doha. What takes you to <laughs> Doha today? Or are you there for work? Are you based there? Yes, I, I work for the Qatar Computing Research Institute, QCRI. Uh, the institute is headquartered here in Doha. And how did you find your way there? People will you know, hear your biography as, at the start of the show, and they're going to read about you in the blog post as well. But just give us a brief, the 30-second pitch on how, to, how you ended up where you are today. Great question, because I'm not a computer scientist. I, I'm a wannabe computer scientist, if anything. The story is simply I was giving a presentation at a talk at a technology conference in Paris a few years back where I was highlighting how humanitarian organizations really needed to work more closely with folks doing advanced computing because humanitarian organizations are simply not well-placed to make sense of so-called big data that gets generated during disasters. And it just so happens that at this conference, the executive director of QCRI was in the audience and uh, basically said, why don't you come and give the same talk in Doha? And then I was uh, happily recruited to work with an outstanding team of uh, computer science uh, experts here. And is Doha, I, I know that there's a, you know, the humanitarian cities in that part of the world. Is there a reason why Doha, why they, they said, we want to raise our hand for this? Well, so the Qatar Computing Research Institute basically carries out advanced computing, research development, prototyping in, in different areas of computing, from big data analytics to social computing, language technologies, bioinformatics, and so on. The reason why I was attracted and, and, and recruited to this position was because the executive director wanted to be sure that when they founded the institute a few years back that they would be more than just an academic research institute doing cutting-edge research and development and so on, that they would also have a very applied, deliberately applied focus and, in my case, a, a, a have a mission that is one that is has a you know positive impact beyond the academic space, to so have meaningful social impact. And because we are a member of the Qatar Foundation, which like other foundations like Rockefeller, Gates, you name it, has a social mission, I was basically recruited to be that the social mission, sort of humanitarian guy within this computing research institute to ensure that our expertise also had a, a positive impact in the in the real world, in, mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. So what's the sexy, tangible project that you're bringing to fruition right now? Well, there are actually a number of them, and which one to choose? I mean, so one, if, one for example, since uh, just we were just testing it today again, is a platform that we've developed in partnership with UNICEF. Now, I should mention that we don't start any projects here just for the heck of it or because we're intellectually curious. Every project, every social innovation, humanitarian innovation project 
that we begin is in partnership with one or more established humanitarian organizations. And what we do, what a lot of my time at, at the outset is to really refine or co-identify what the major information-based challenges that an organization like UNICEF is facing within a particular project or set of projects. And then we turn that into a research question. We carry out the research here in Doha. And the results, the findings of this research help inform the development of a free and open source prototype that we then co-develop with our partners and co-deploy with our partner on. Now, going back to UNICEF, one of their major challenges they have uh, is a project, a public health project in Zambia, where they're receiving tens of thousands of text messages every month, a number that is increasing, and they're having a very hard time looking through all these text messages, reading them, categorizing them, analyzing all that. So what we've developed is a platform that can help them automatically classify incoming text messages in real time based on categories that they are interested in. And the beauty, I'd like to think, of our approach is that, you know, we're not here to create dependency. Every platform we develop puts the end users of the humanitarian organization in the front seat, and it's them that really then runs the platform and the project. We're not in the way. Um, it really is developed so that they can run this uh, themselves. So it's still early phases for this SMS project, but we've already demonstrated that it works perfectly well with tweets in partnership with UNOCHA. And so we're excited now to extend it to SMS because obviously most people are not tweeting around the world. So just in this particular project, give me a sense of how is this not a competitor to something like frontline SMS or another SMS-based crisis operation? Sure. Now, Front and SMS, I've known them for many, many years while I was with Ushahidi back in 2008. Great colleagues, wonderful team. Ken Banks is a personal friend. What they've done is they've, and in fact, you know, they're on my list of folks to, to go back to and, and explore partnerships. Uh, what they've done is to provide a very easy way for anybody to set up an SMS gateway, right? Uh, using a simple mobile phone, connect to it to a laptop. And I believe what they've been working on the past year or two now is a web-based system as well that does not require the use of a mobile phone connected to a laptop. What we focus on really is a big data challenge because keyword search or keyword filtering for large data sets is very inefficient and uh, results in, in a lot of accuracies, uh, often up to 40% of errors to, um, in, in the process, in the use of, of keyword search because it's not using machine learning or statistical machine learning and natural language processing and so on. And that's not good enough for most humanitarian organizations. So what we do is we apply human computing and combine that with machine computing, machine learning, to ensure that the classific, the automatic classification of text messages is far, far more accurate than doing simple keyword search. Uh, and this is something that a frontline SMS is not necessarily doing. It does require folks who have PhDs in artificial intelligence and all that good stuff. Um, but again, what we do is free and open source, and that's why I'm really interested in working with another free and open source initiative like Frontline to see if they need it to begin with, if they do have partners or users that, that are dealing with you know tens, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of text messages a day. The SMS application you just described is a great example. Is there another example of, a, of an output that you have either developed at your current work or in another work that where you can point to and say, hey, tangible impact, this was created, we put it out there for the agency or the organization or the, the community, and here's the difference it's made? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's still early days. And, you know, this whole assessment and impact uh, area is so important. And yet we're one or two steps removed because we're not the humanitarian organizations ourselves. We're not the user of the platform. So when we deployed the same platform uh, in response to Typhoon Ruby in the Philippines a couple of months ago at the request of UN OCHA, they're the ones who are then getting all the information, all the tweets being filtered, all the pictures posted on Twitter being filtered by disaster damage and then being mapped. They are the end users. They're the decision makers of the folks on the ground who then use that in addition to a whole host of other sources of information to augment their situational awareness, to better inform their decision making. Understanding how our little part ultimately made an operational difference on the ground is really hard because frankly, humanitarian organizations don't really know the answer to that question with their own data, right? We're struggling with evidence-based decision making in the humanitarian space. And, you know, as one of my UN colleagues in Geneva said in response to some of these conversations, it was like, well, you know, what impact did the last UN map have? We don't know. Um, mm. So it is a challenge. And the best we've been able to do is to solicit, actively solicit feedback from our humanitarian partners as much as possible and say, how was this used? Did it help? How can we improve it? And it's largely anecdotal. Is that good enough? Frankly, no. I would love to do a lot better. I don't know that we are the right people to do it. First of all, it should be an independent evaluation by independent experts who are funded independently to do that and who are on the ground themselves and who understand the difficulties of decision making and understanding the whole decision making processes uh, on the ground. So it's not ideal. And if you have any suggestions on how we can improve that, I'm all ears. We can have a conversation offline about that. <laughs> sure, sure. But so one of the things you've written about, I've seen it both in your blog post, I'm going to suspect it's also in your new book on digital humanitarianism. It's not necessarily lack of data that humanitarians suffer from, but it's also data overwhelm. Do you consider a part of your focus to reduce that overwhelm? And where my question is going is, I'm an, a mobile phone user, I'm a, I'm a smartphone user. I've been overwhelmed just by the number of apps that are available, by the number of websites that are available. I've been to enough crisis sites that, you know, oh my gosh, where is this information coming from? What's your thought on how to, I think the problem is reducing the overwhelm at the end of the day. It is. I mean, increasingly it is. Of course, uh, not everywhere around the world, right? It, it's not a black and white situation. All of a sudden, we're in an information environment cat you know, that's marked by overload of information. It's just more that more situations, disasters around the world are leading to more data being generated. That doesn't mean that everywhere, of course. And yes, one of the mandates that we do have, given our expertise in big data analytics and big data solutions, is how can we bring these solutions, these cutting-edge solutions that you tend to find in the private sector that cost an arm and a leg, how do we provide them in a way that is freely available and, and open source and usable to humanitarian organizations, right? So that's a lot of what we do is trying to filter that content. And in a way, because of this, some people say that, you know, this flood of information is as paralyzing to disaster response, can be as paralyzing to disaster response as the absence of information. So how do we find those needles in the haystack within this flood of information, the needles being the informative, actionable, 
uh, relevant, credible pieces of information? And how do we filter these out of the haystack and provide them to humanitarian organizations so that they can have access to more timely, informative, actionable information? And that's exactly what we do in a nutshell. And we don't only do this with text messages or tweets. I think I hinted we also do this with pictures and videos. And then now more recently, doing a lot of work on satellite and aerial imagery, aerial imagery being imagery captured by UAVs, so non-lethal civilian drones that provide a bird's eye view of disaster affected areas for needs assessments and so on. Part of the Drones yep. for Good program? That's right. So we have a, one of our initiatives is a humanitarian UAV network, which includes uh, UNOCHA, the Red Cross, the World Bank, the European Commission on their advisory board, as well as a number of UAV manufacturers and, and UAV groups. And what we try and do is help basically catalyze collaboration and partnerships between humanitarian organizations and UAV experts and also provide solutions on making sense of large volumes of aerial imagery that get generated. And of course, you know, time is a luxury that humanitarian organizations don't have during disasters. So we don't want to take days or weeks analyzing gigabytes or terabytes worth of aerial imagery, we want to be able to do that in near real time. And, you know, one of the reasons I moved to a computer science research institute was because those skills and that knowledge and that expertise is here. It's not necessarily at the UN Secretariat in Geneva or in New York, and that's not a criticism. We were never expected to be data science experts in the humanitarian space. And this whole big data challenge is relatively new, and it's going to take some time to develop that expertise in-house. In the meantime, I think that computing research institutes can really help out in a, in a meaningful way to make sense of this flood uh, of information. Can you think of a time, you have a unique position through all of the organizations you've worked with, through the boards that you're on, through the judging panels you're on, through the research you've done, has this work or this particular technological push ever failed? For I'm thinking no. of the Kenya crisis. <laughs> I'm thinking of, you know, the tsunami. I'm thinking of, of a time when the wrong information got out there and bad things happened or a result happened that everyone's like, ooh, that's not what we wanted. And if so, could you take us through one of those? And how did you help or, or how did you see the community react to rectify it? Uh, that's a really great question, Stephen. And I would, I think we fail all the time. And that's not a, what we do is we fail quickly and, and we fail forward to use um, an expression that a colleague of mine uh, has been using over the years is about learning as quickly as possible and improving and, and failing better, failing faster, failing forward. All these technologies we're developing, they're never completely ready for deployment. And we make that very, very clearly to our humanitarian partners as well to all the other groups that we work with. When a major disaster happens and we get a request from the United Nations uh, UN agency to deploy uh, one of our platforms, we very clearly in writing, in phone calls and so on say, right, here's the status of our technology. It is not ready for prime time. It has not been fully tested. It is still under development. Are you still in favor of deploying the technology with the understanding that it may fail, it may not work, it may crash, and so on. Every single time we've asked that question, our humanitarian partners have said, yes, we understand, we've got to learn together, this is a real world, we don't have the luxury of locking ourselves up into a computer lab for three years to come up with the ultimate best solution and then realize three years later that it's actually had not gone through uh, the process of iterative development and iterative deployment. So. I'm savvy to that. Many of our listeners are savvy to the iterative development, but I'm also, unfortunately or fortunately, 
savvy to the other part of, let's say, UN procurement or government procurement that has no appreciation for iterative development. How are you helping to bridge that gap? I think we're very, very lucky that the focal points in the humanitarian organizations who we collaborate with are not necessarily your traditional, perhaps uh, conservative. (laughs) Yes, they're very, very different. And I think, honestly, we wouldn't be able to do half of what we're doing if it were not for those individuals who are change agents within their large humanitarian organizations uh, and, and disruptors, but they know how to work the system, they know how to go through the system, manage the system, and know when to circumvent the system in order to get something done. They're very, I mean, they should be teaching MBAs and business schools all around the world. Just It's just they're very, very smart in how they manage this, something I would not be able to do or have the patience of doing. And it's really thanks to them being there, being our champions within these large organizations, and their forward-thinking, their enlightened leadership, that is enabling these partnerships to flourish and for us to take this very iterative, very applied, learn-by-doing approach. Uh, of course, that doesn't happen with every organization, and it really is a matter of, based on my experience over the t- past 10 years, it's about in the individuals. And in any case, yes, things always go wrong, and, and what we do is we, we learn and uh, you know, we iterate and, and we try and, and do things less wrong in the future. I want to sort of change focus a little bit now because, you know, what we really like to focus on here at Apreneur is how you've created success, how, you know, you've built this career that's that's been essentially focused on humanitarian aid. Has it always been that way for you? I mean, you've got a PhD, you've, you have just, you know, a fantastic CV. Was there always this humanitarian aid where I'm going, but clearly big data is a focus. Why not Silicon Valley? You know, why, why didn't you, you know, why don't you find yourself at you know, Visa International or Amex International right now? Take us through how you stumbled into humanitarian aid and why that's your passion. That's a great question as well, and I think a pretty defining moment. I mean, I, I was born and raised in Africa. I was born in Cote d'Ivoire, in Abidjan, and I grew up in Nairobi, and spent the first 15 years of my life basically in Africa, and that is the number one reason why I'm doing what I do now. I did get slightly distracted in high school when I got, and this is the irony of it all, I got hooked into computer science, into programming and just got completely addicted to this idea of being able to program your own worlds. And I decided that, you know, I would go ahead and, and do a bachelor's and a master's degree in computer science. In the UK, they have programs that combine the two of them. Well, you get a th- four-year bachelor's, master's degree in computer science. So off I went to the UK to do my master's degree in computer science and software engineering. And within the first month, I realized that maybe something was wrong, <laughs> that this was not exactly... <laughs> what I wanted to do. I had a very hard time identifying with my uh, colleagues, which were perfectly awesome, amazing, wonderful people. And it just, something was not feeling right. And I was miserable during that first year. I went along with it and I was absolutely miserable. And then I realized one afternoon, no, it was a late afternoon, early evening on a Friday, I was in the basement of the computer lab building logic circuits, computer circuits, and that's when it really hit me. And I still remember this moment like it was yesterday where I basically told myself, what the heck am I doing here? How does this, any of this relate to anything that I experienced during the first 15 years of my life? There's zero connection. What am I going to go back with? Because I always wanted to go back to Africa and work there. What am I going to bring building logic circuits? How is that going to have any impact? And I quit. I dropped out of the program completely. I said, this is ridiculous. 
I was completely, you know, uh, not thinking, and I changed into a program called Political Science, Philosophy, and Economics, and then never looked back. Of course, the irony now is that I work for a computing research institute, and I'm using computer science to try and make a difference in the humanitarian space. So um, it's kind of funny how things work out. The story is so not unusual for so many of the guests that we have here in terms of reference that either the aha moment happens or you sort of find yourself stumbling into, into aid and you wake up 10 years later and you're like, oh, I was always supposed to be here. I just had no idea how to get here in the first place. So yeah, that's a fantastic story. You're in a, a unique position amongst all of us in that you're looking, you're on the bleeding edge every day. What do you foresee in the next five years or 10 years as the future of either how digital technology will influence humanitarian action or how you think humanitarian action will change because of that? What does the future look like to you? Is there any anything you'd be able to put out there or, or any prediction you'd have that says we're going in this direction? I can definitely try and think of some, <laughs> some potential answers, but just to maybe say I've always liked in my in my work is to always go where nowhere else is going, in the sense that, you know, there are no other humanitarians in this Institute of Computer Scientists. I have 150 top-notch computer scientists, right? I am definitely the odd one out by a mile, if not 100 miles. And I really enjoy just putting myself in these situations where I am the odd one out because that's, frankly, it's very selfish. I get to learn a heck of a lot. And I get to be exposed to different ways of thinking, different ways of doing, different ideas and different solutions. And I, I really enjoy that a lot. Now, in terms of where we're headed, phew, um, maybe I'll just bite off a small bit of that and maybe that'll help answer. Uh, you know, I've been in increasingly interested in the use of UAVs for disaster response. And as we all know, by definition, first responders are not the UN folks, not the search and rescue team from Iceland that gets parachuted in 48 hours Before you later. go too far, yes. can you explain to everybody what a UAV is? Oh, so sorry. Yes, unmanned aerial vehicle, which is also referred to as unmanned aerial systems, which is also referred to as a drone or a remotely piloted aircraft system, RPAS. That's a more common term in Europe. Intelligent remote control airplanes or helicopters, basically. Uh, which are being used increasingly and are getting more and more interest from a number of humanitarian organizations around the world. World Food Program, UNICEF, the World Health Organization is already piloting uh, quadcopters, so helicopters that have four propellers for the transportation of payloads, medical, vaccine payloads, and so on. So it's, it's already been happening. And in Haiti, there's a team of Haitians that, and this goes back to my, the point, I wanted to share is, you know, in Haiti, there's a team of, of local Haitians that have been trained to deploy uh, UAVs for disaster preparedness, risk reduction, response, and to share the imagery they're collecting with the international humanitarian organizations. And I really like that story, where you have local communities that are being empowered to use the technology to collect the data themselves, to help themselves, and then also share the data with others, because... Uh, by definition, disaster-affected communities are themselves the first responders, always have been and always will be. So how do we empower these local communities with this new technology to better self-organize, to take more informed decisions, and so on? And that can be a combination, obviously, not only UAVs, but mobile phones, social media, and so on. And that's what we're seeing increasingly, is that first responders, the local affected communities, are becoming increasingly tech-savvy and increasingly able to accelerate the self-organization that's already always been there and to do it more efficiently and a lot faster than brick-and-mortar humanitarian organizations are able to. And I'm really interested in that dynamic and that trend that we're seeing 
uh, I think it is quite disruptive and, and is ultimately not a bad, I mean, I know that humanitarian organizations and folks that I've spoken with can feel a little threatened by all this, but I think it's a very, very good. It ultimately takes some of the burden off a very overstretched international humanitarian system. So I'm all for that kind of empowerment and local hacking of this technology and, and the collective action on the ground. So I hope we see this continuing. And I just, I, frankly, I don't see how that would, why would that would end anytime soon. I think we're going to see more and more of that. Mm. Especially in a world where there's, what, four L4, L3 emergencies right now. Two more questions for you. One super practical, the other one a little more whimsical. The practical <laughs> question is, you're lucky enough to be at a foundation right now. We have no idea how well it's endowed, but we'll assume it's well endowed being where you are right now. Do you have to worry about the financing of the research that you're doing or the financing of the initiatives that you're doing? I know you said that you partner with the humanitarian organization, but, but how does that work in your world right now? Are, do you have a team of people that are writing proposals and sort of going out and partnering, or is that all on your shoulders? And how do you manage that? Talk about being in a luxurious position here because I don't have, none of us and my team have to do any fundraising. All our funding come directly from the Qatar Foundation. Uh, this is basically from the state of Qatar, from the oil money, the gas money, and so on. And Qatar has a very active uh, strategy to diversify away from mineral resources. And they're doing this very aggressively, more so than any other Gulf countries around the world, uh, around the region. And part of that means basically establishing and, you know, being involved in the information knowledge economy, the knowledge sector and contributing to cutting-edge advances there. This is why the Assistance Institute exists, is to help basically put Qatar on the map as far as uh, cutting-edge information technology, information computing, and so on goes. And as part of that, because as I mentioned, we're a member of the Qatar Foundation, there's also that social impact uh, mission that, that we have. So it is an incredible position to be in where I don't worry about funding and all we really worry about is whether we're meeting our recruitment criteria because we're set to double and triple in the next five years and we're about 130, 140 now. Um, and you know, that's the, that's <laughs> our challenges if we can hire fast enough, which is really, really unusual. And, um, talk about being spoiled. It's yeah. going to be hard being in a different position, but again, one of the main reasons why I took on this position was, great, I can really focus on the work. And because of this, all our time, my team's time, my time that goes into these uh, humanitarian projects is pro bono. Our time with humanitarian partners is all pro bono. The platforms we develop, free and open source. I mean, it's very, very, very unusual. I don't know that I could be doing this in many other places around the world. Congratulations to you. That's fantastic. You've ended up there. Last question is one that we ask every guest here on the Terms of Reference podcast. You have found your way to a position that is, as you just described, you know, sort of the holy grail, successful, and you sort of have your pick of the litter of the stuff that you want to do. What advice would you give to our listeners, many of whom are either finishing master's degrees right now or seeking to transition into this field what advice would you give to them about how to be successful in whatever passion that they have? Follow your passion. Do what you're most excited and just go all out and do it as responsibly as you can, understanding that you will make mistakes. But learn as much as you can and as fast as you can with the mistakes and find good people. Good, find people who, uh, none of what I'm doing is a one-person show. It's because it's an incredible team and I've been fortunate to work with a number of incredible teams over the years. And find those people who share your passion and who want to be a part of uh, of the story. 
Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating talk. Thanks again. Really enjoyed the conversation, Stephen. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. 